Greetings, everybody. Uh, Stephen Gray here, uh, continuing interviews with uh, leading figures in, um, excuse me, in work to do with psychedelics and consciousness transformation. And, uh, excuse me, um, I'm looking for my files. Give me a second. Uh, we had a little screw up here and uh, we had to restart. Um, so there we go. Uh, pardon me. Um, anyway, uh, these interviews, I've got uh, over two dozen of them now, uh, as I'm speaking here in the uh, summer of uh, 2022. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, again, the purpose is to help nudge the planet toward an awakening, which is absolutely essential at this time. I think most people would agree. And to that end, uh, I have a very interesting woman here with me today. Uh, well, not physically with me. She's in Montreal, I think. Is that correct? That yeah. is correct. Right. Okay. So, um, and her name is uh, Jessica Rochester, um, and she has a book, uh, a two-volume book, uh, coming out very soon. Uh, but I'm going to read her little bio to start with here. So, uh, Jessica Rochester is an ordained interfaith minister with a doctorate in divinity, a transpersonal counselor. She trained in the work of psychiatrist Roberto Asagioli, pardon me if I didn't get that quite right, uh, MD, and trained with, uh, trained with Stanislav Grof. She's an educator who lectures on subjects such as non-ordinary states of consciousness, spiritual development, and well-being. She's the madrina of Seo de Do, or Do Montreal, or Montreal, um, the Santo Daime Church she founded in 1997. Uh, Jessica worked with Health Canada from 2001 until 2017 to achieve the legal right to import and serve Santo the Santo Daime Sacrament, known to us as um, ayahuasca generally, or the rest of us who don't know that. Um, the daimi, actually, the word daimi is, refers to the medicine. Uh, she's the author of a two-volume uh, book, uh, or two books, uh, called Ayahuasca Awakening, a guide to self-discovery, self-mastery, and self-care. And before I uh, start speaking with her, I just want to also mention something that I normally mention right at the beginning, is that uh, these interviews are on YouTube. YouTube, or will be on YouTube, and uh, but they're also on uh, in audio format uh, through Anchor.fm, A-N-C-H-O-R.fm, and those show up on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts and a few other places. So, uh, and one other thing is, please sub subscribe to the channel. Uh, I'm not trying to get rich or famous here. What I'm trying to do is share uh, very interesting and important voices with people. And I'm told that the more subscribers, the, the, the higher up on the searches that these things show up. And so more people will have access to them. So welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me today. Sure. Um, okay, so I'm going to jump in with a question that might be a little provocative. Um, uh, I don't know how you will answer this. Uh, the books are called Ayahuasca Awakening. Um, but uh, I, okay, so I've, I've, I've read about a book and a half worth. Some of it I read rather quickly, so I may have missed a few things. I did some skimming. Um, but I don't see a lot of discussion about the psychedelic medicines in there or an ayahuasca or anything the the only reason i could think of that you would have named it that uh, apart from being an attention grabber which is totally understandable i do that with my books as well or my publisher does that uh, is that you a good portion of your awakenings came from your ayahuasca or daimi experiences. So can you tell us why that title? Okay, so let me say one more thing before you answer that question, actually. Um, another thing that I noted about the books, which is self-evident, is that they... Uh, they're almost like a Bible, like a sort of a, a, a you know, a handbook uh, for everything. You know, you've covered so much in those two books, uh, you know, diet, exercise, meditation, yoga, you know. So um, uh, why that title? Well, it's a very interesting question. Thank you. When I originally wrote the book, it was one book. It wasn't uh, volume one and volume two. And the original title was The Study. 
And maybe, you know, I trained with Stanislav Grof, and he was gracious enough to read the whole thing in the advanced review. And he said to me, I'm not sure about the title, okay? It doesn't really say what's going on in there. And so I said, okay, and put it aside for a while until it came time for publication. And um, I actually sat and meditated in, we call our Santo Daime ceremonies or rituals, we call them works. Mm -hmm. works because it's not play they're hard work they really are hard work and so i was sitting and i thought okay spirit what do you want me to call the book and this is what arrived ayahuasca awakening mm. so that's that's what they're called it was called the study the, the and then a guide to self-discovery self-mastery and self-care so now it's two volumes and the study got moved aside and but that's really what it is it's a deep study it's a deep study into the self um i took i i had a private practice for nearly 40 years i've worked with people for longer than that i've been on my own spiritual journey uh, all of my life and i just felt like i needed to take everything that i knew and everything that I'd been teaching my students in, in when I was teaching all those years, my, my clients, my uh, workshops, the breathwork workshops, everything that I had learned, I felt I needed to just share them and do it all in one go. So there you are. It covers everything that I could possibly think of that will, has helped me find wellness in my life, mm -hmm. physical, emotional, psychological and spiritual, and hopefully will contribute to other people's uh, experience of wellness in their life. Well, speaking for myself, um, you know, I've been around the block uh, more than a few times by now, so um, I'm familiar with a lot of the ideas in the book. But I think for uh, younger people in particular, well, anyone really, but, you know, people coming into uh, their healing journey and so on, uh, there's a lot of incredible advice in that book or guidance, I would say, honestly. I'm not just saying that because, you know, we're not here specifically to promote your book. We're here to share the ideas, really. And... Uh, there's a lot of great ideas in that book, honestly, uh, I mean that. Um, so, and I had, as I told you before we put, hit the record button, I got so many questions. I'm, I hardly know where to start. Uh, we'll never get through them all. Um, I actually wrote down because I was going, oh, wow, that's really interesting. You know, over 30 questions. And so let's just pick out one to start with here. Uh, as you know, psychedelic psychotherapy is um, a burgeoning field these days but um, it's complicated there are problems with it uh, with the way it's rolling out um, and I'm just wondering how you're feeling about okay maybe you can answer this any way you want uh, like what are the sort of pros and cons of that kind of work what are the things that people need to be aware of as clients that are as pr practitioners or what are some of the um, kind of simple uh, you know kind of like five point or whatever things that uh, anyone when thinking of being a, psych a psychedelic psychotherapist or guide should uh, be aware of? Wow, that's a big question. And I'm going, to try and I'm going to try and get to, right to the couple of points that are in there. And, and you know, I wrote these books not just for the, I, I wrote them in a way for the average individual, not the academic world. And that was really important for me. And that's where I took the advice of colleagues and um, and but I'm hoping that these guidebooks will be uh, an important part of the education process in um, in the in the programs that are being developed where people are training to become psychedelic therapists and, and that, that these books can be part of that education process because they're intended as educational guidebooks um, for academics and for lay people. So I cover ethics. Ethics is a big issue. And I cover that in, in a section in the book and the importance of it and the challenges that happen. You know, wherever you have a group of humans, you're going to have ethical challenges. They're usually the same suspects, right? Money, power, sex, substances. Okay, it's usually the same kind of problems that are going to crop up. And we all have to become aware of our own vulnerabilities. And so what I want to put a little word in right now is um, I was guided through visions from, from our, our sacrament um, to do a conference in 2019. Anyone interested can go to either my website for the link to it or to our church's website and, and you can see the presentations. They're up. 
um, there. And the next year I was shown, okay, now you have to do this. And it was a project called Entheogens and Psychedelics in Canada, Proposals for a New Paradigm, which was published in the Canadian Journal of Psychology last year. We're now in stage two of it. And we cover education, credentialing, ethics. We cover all the big things. And we actually make a proposal uh, which is again inspired by the need of the moment, this immense uh, need for people to find uh, a way of coming to terms with themselves as individuals and what they're experiencing, be it anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and, and so reaching out for tools. And so psychedelic therapy is stepping into the gap that seems to be there. There doesn't seem to be sufficient tools for people to work with. There is perhaps great hope in being able to use these, but I do believe that specific education is required. Working in non-ordinary states is not the same as working in everyday talk therapy or some of the regular uh, psychological tools, which can be very helpful. Um, and so education credentialing, okay, extremely important. You know, what kind of licensing do you have to be able to do this? What kind of training do you have? Do you understand non-ordinary states of consciousness? This is like learning to swim, you know, you, you, are you, do you know how to swim and, and you barely know how to swim and now you're going to take people in the deep end of the pool? I don't think so. Are you going to take them out scuba diving? So you have to know how to go in the deep waters and what's mm -hmm. there because that's where your clients are going to be going. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't dealt with your own deep waters, you might run into some challenges about trying to help people in their own deep waters. Stephen, does that make sense, what I'm yes. saying? And have you seen problems with that of people who have done this kind of work oh, yes. who have not gone into those deep states and have not yes. successfully um, worked with people? I've, I've certainly, I've heard, certainly had people come and and share experiences. Yes, and, um, and of equal concern is, is um, kind of what you want to call pop up shamans. You know, they go and spend a month somewhere down in South America, come back, and now they're you know add a cup of hot water and stir. And now they're a shaman. Mm -hmm. This is a, this is a very serious situation that that needs considerable um, education and for people to understand on both sides of it. You know, you couldn't put your flag out and say, "Okay, I'm a dentist," unless you'd actually gone to dental school and actually trained and actually certified and actually have your certificate, right? And so, it is the same for working in deep, non-ordinary states of consciousness. You either apprentice. I was 14 years apprenticing under the elders of, of Mabia and other elders uh, throughout Brazil for 14 years before our church uh, went independent. That's a long apprenticeship. I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's been a concern of mine for quite a long time. Is, is what you, I haven't heard that term, but it's quite appropriate, pop-up shamans. Um, excuse me, I could have cough. <clears throat> um, yeah, deep concern. So on the other side of that coin, so to speak, do you have any concerns about um, uh, the perhaps over-bureaucratic control by both industry and the medical profession of the development of uh, the psychedelic renaissance, if you want to call it that? We addressed that in the same paper. So, you know, anybody listening who's a practitioner in the psychedelic or, or you know, uh, sacred plants, medicinal plants field, please look up that paper. And if you support it, then let us know as we go into stage two working with Health Canada. Um, the reality, yes, those two things that you've mentioned, um, we, we do address them. We are concerned about uh, industry seeing this as as a instant leg up into ready cash okay people hungry for a solution this looks like a solution let's patent it and get it out there and you know manage the market on it and so a very serious eye needs to be kept on that and we offer a solution or at least not maybe a solution, but what we're advising is a national advisory council, which would be adjunct to the Office of Controlled Substances, Health Canada, and which would have a seat for um, 
for all of the um, sacred plant medicine practices, such as Santa Daimi, the Unio de Vistal, the Native American Peyote Church. Um, if, if there's indigenous mushroom people here in Canada, we'd love them to connect with us and let us know. And then the researchers and the clinicians, um, each, so whether it's uh, a beginning or ketamine or MDMA or what have you, each have their seats, a seat for the pharmaceutical, a suit for spiritual care, and, and clergy, um, education, a credentialing committee, all of this has been mapped out and we've been in discussions over the necessity to have business and, and the pharmaceutical in industry all together in a conversation with the people who are actually either in traditional practices using sacred plants and um, who are doing research and clinical work in it. And so that we can understand, we're all working with people in non-ordinary states of consciousness, so we have that in common. And so how to work, how to, how to, how to work all together. This kind of vision that I had is based on what they have in Brazil. Um, Kuniachi, uh, the uh, multi-disciplinary uh, group that works adjunct to the equivalent um, synergy of the Office of Controlled Substances in Brazil. Uh, where working, they work with ayahuasca, so they have the traditional people sitting, and the ritual people, uh, heritage uh, practices, with the educators, the clinicians, the researchers, and the people who are making the policy. And mm -hmm. that's what we are trying to put into place. Um, and it's all a voluntary effort. So if people want to come and join us and help out, that would be fantastic. And if anybody's got some trust fund rattling around, not quite <laughs> sure where to invest, then we'd welcome you in too. Wonderful. So we're trying to put everybody down, you know, put, put everybody into a council adjunct to the Office of Control Substances so that all those conversations could be had together. Excellent. And so, hopefully. Yeah, excellent. Oh, wow, I'm really glad to hear you say that. That you know, it's so important. Um, okay, so I'd like to kind of get more into the, you know, the depths of the work itself. There's so many different ways, or are there are at least several different ways that people can encounter and approach working with these extremely powerful substances. Um, and so one question, uh, I don't even remember if this is in your book particularly, uh, there's, a, there's a, a, a term or concept around a lot in the last few years of the importance of integration. And what I've personally observed in a completely non-scientific, uh, too small of a study to maybe valid away, um, is that I'm not quite sure that a lot of the people that are doing a lot of psychedelics are changing dramatically from that use. Uh, so um, I don't know if that if that makes sense to you uh, or not, but I'm wondering if you yes. have any comments on that and you yes. know, how people are able to ground those. Uh, well, let me put it this way. My old Buddhist teacher said, it's one thing to let go. It's another thing to let be. At what level of openness can you let be? So could you comment on that, please? What excellent questions. Thank you. And I do like your Buddhist teacher. Good teachings. So, um, again, there's a few questions within the one question. So, what you're asking is first about integration. Mm -hmm. Integration is a very um, interesting question because it opens into a much larger conversation. Who's doing the integrating? And, and, and what lens are they using to look at the person's experience? And what belief systems do they have that they're going to be supporting that person to integrate? Does that make sense? Mm, what I'm saying? Keep going. So the yeah. person who's doing the supporting of the person integrating has to, I think, have a really good background and training in working with the transpersonal maps. So whether they're Groffian or Jungian or Sagiolian or, you know, but very large transpersonal maps to be able to help people make a distinction between psychological material, true spiritual material, egoic fantasy. There's a lot of that going on. We're human. We all have egos, you know, and this is, it's very easy for people to get into um, what we call thought forms. <clears throat> that can be very connected to our ego. And then we can start taking some of our experiences and letting our ego build up around them and, 
And if we don't have, if we don't have the either the heritage teachings, wisdom teachings, elders, um, you know, properly trained, educated, credentialed people who've done their, let's say, academic and experiential training to be able to help people integrate their material by understanding that, those differences that I've just mentioned. We also have what happens between spiritual awakening when people have very deep experiences, whether they're mediated by um, sacred plants or substances or uh, the other ways, meditation, yoga, spontaneously arising. So there's spiritual awakening all the way to spiritual emergency, where a flood of somebody's internal material, usually repressed psychological material, is now heaving its way up to the surface. And what are you going to do with that? How do you work with that? How do you support that? How do you help that person um, face and resolve whatever's emerging? And, you know, the spiritual emergency can rehab mental illness. There is such a thing. And I have seen people and know people who pathologize spirituality and spiritual experiences. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people spiritualize psychopathology. Hmm. Is, is that clear enough what I'm saying? Do you need me to say more on that? or? No, that's okay. Um, um, uh, so um, that brings up a question that you actually addressed in the book, and you've started to speak about it a little bit. And I think you said something about the importance of learning to distinguish between, uh, uh, you know, sort of egoic or you know, invalid, so to speak, uh, inner voices, and I'm not sure how you would have put it, spiritual or beyond your inner voices, so to speak. Um, uh, could you distinguish or help people? clarify how to um, recognize uh, the right kinds of inner voices and know which kinds of inner voices to pay attention to or to consider valuable or authentic? I'll do my best to keep it brief um, because again these are these are deep deep questions that open into a lot of interesting and fascinating material but basically there's a few little kind of litmus test things you can see. The voices, we all have inner voices, our little voice that chatters in our head and our instincts that are low down in our body that we feel in our gut. And, you know, how do we make the distinction, as, you, as you've asked me, between the voices that will be helping us in our life and the voices that will be distracting us, interfering uh, actually preventing us from becoming our most authentic self or being our most self. So that's, you know, for a lot of people, that's a piece of work. First of all, we have to get rid of the old tapes, you know, all those things that we were taught at school and in our neighborhood or culture or in our home, um, those negative tapes that tell us we're not good enough or we're bad or we're, mm -hmm. we're too tall or we're too short or we're too whatever, okay? Whatever it is, is we're wrong, we're bad, what happened? Yeah. So, you know, those things are obviously not healthy and they have to be addressed. And that's kind of, let's package that up as the kind of psychological material, the baggage left over from uh, that can become inner stories, thought forms and inner belief systems and things like that. And those are usually very handling it. And then there's this, this, you know, if we're willing to, and then there's this more fine distinction between what I sort of call the voices of light and the voices of darkness. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I put it that simply so that we can find our way. And, and what I use as an example is on the highway, there's something called the rumble strip. Okay. And the rumble strip is there. So if you start to fall asleep on the road, your tires will make this, this noise and it'll shake you. It rumbles the car and it makes a noise and it wakes you up. And I think that on some level that there, there's, there's a mechanism within us, some kind of spiritual mechanism that's trying to wake us up when we're wandering away from our, our, you know, off the path, off our authenticity path, our, you know, I, I, our true identity of who we really are, who am I and why am I here path, you know? And so there's many things that will, within us that will be trying to wake us up. We can call that the voice of conscience, 
like, oh, no, don't do that. You know, the voice of conscience says, don't have that second piece of pie or (laughs) not such a good idea. Okay. So the voices of light will always be guiding us into that which is healthy, wholesome, and for well-being. They will be, the voices of light will be rooted in compassion, wisdom, clarity, truth, justice, or fairness, Mm -hmm. always rooted in those qualities. The voices, darkness, are tricky. Okay, they're tricky. They're going to use our vulnerabilities, our fears, our inadequacies, our insecurities. They will. And they will, the voices of darkness, let's call it that, just to make it simple, mm-hmm. um, will play on those fears, inadequacies. They'll play on, we all have character flaws, right? Mm-hmm. No one, nobody's perfect. We can agree on that. We all have our strengths and our shortcomings. And our character flaws are, you know, a open door for the voices of darkness to just come knocking and walk right in. And so we have to learn within ourselves how to listen to the voice of inner wisdom, mm-hmm. how to listen to the voice of our instincts, how to listen to what I'm calling the voices of light, the things that say this is the way of health and healing, even if it's scary even if it means leaving something that might be important, even if it means starting something, it's the voice of maybe inner wisdom that says, go back to school, finish that degree, start your diet, you know, join that yoga class, read that book, go and tell your fill in the blank brother, sister, mother, father, daughter, son, you're sorry. Okay. Those are the voices of light. Are those voices always reliable? You know, I've, I've I've been in, you know, lots of sharing sessions after ayahuasca ceremonies, and sometimes people say things, well, you know, ayahuasca, ayahuasca told me to do this or do this. Uh, or, I have to be very careful there. That That's yeah. that tricky, that's that tricky place where, where we have, that's where good teachers, mm-hmm. elders, um, people who understand how to help you make a distinction between, you know, Stan Groff, I'll use his teachings. He always used to say, never make any decisions right after a breathwork session. Mm -hmm. Never make any big ones, you know, quitting my job, leaving my wife, whatever. Don't make those decisions for a while after breathwork. Work with your material because people will act out instead of working with. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, so uh, you talk about mediumship, sort of, and we're, we're kind of getting into some of the same territory there. So actually, let me ask, ask this one. Um, this is not one of my written down questions exactly, uh, but um, uh, would you say, well, okay, so one of the things that comes through your book, by the way, for this, I'm saying this for the benefit of people watching or listening, uh, there are a lot of... Uh, I really like the way that you blended personal stories in with the the teachings, as it were, the guidance, the you know the you know ten points of this, uh, you know, and so on and so on. Uh, that really makes it more readable for one thing, and brings you know an interesting human quality into it. And one of the things that comes through in in many of those stories is that you have been very um, how would. It, I put it, the veil between you and the spirit uh, energies or worlds uh, is very thin in my experience compared to, you know, most of us, including myself, frankly. Um, uh, And so uh, would you say that, uh, uh, okay, so, you know, kind of lost specifically what question I wanted to ask you to do with mediumship about that. But first of all, uh, let me put it this way. There are, I'm gathering... um, independent entities that have nothing to do with your personal psychology uh, that can come through uh, once the channels have been opened up and you know with medicines like ayahuasca correct yes that's correct yeah and so um uh and but they're not all positive necessarily right they're not necessarily voices of light well again you've opened you've asked a question that's, that opens into some very deep studies. First of all, let's just 
you know, let's just define mediumship so that we're working with the same definition for the purpose of this conversation only. Okay, I don't want anybody listening to go away and say, this is mediumship, okay? First of all, there are many different schools of mediumship around the world. Many, many different schools, different studies. Some of them are very old, go back thousands of years, very deep, long-term studies. And um, others are more recent, European spiritism, for example, 100, 120, 150 years old, okay? And, and so there's different studies, and people go into their study where they feel called. So... Uh, yes, I came into the Sandra Daimi 26 years ago. It's since then I've been drinking and then serving for all these years. And um, But yes, your question is correct. Is Yes, the door for me is the channel is very open since I'm a small child. It's how I'm wired. Some people are sitting at the piano at age six, you know, and, and playing. And, and everybody has their own individual... Um, kind of life that they're living with the character they've been given, the gifts that they've been given, whether they're creative or musical or whatever talent each of us have talents, it's for us to develop them. And some of us are just really spiritually open. And what was clear for me is I needed training and I needed teachers and I spent most of my life feeling called to, I've been you know, I, I was part of the East-West, so I was through the door of the ashram, there every night after work, and, you know, mm. retreats with the Buddhists, and meditation retreats, and silent retreats, and I've had wonderful, wonderful teachers, and some great therapists along the, the way, and who helped me learn how to, um, how to work with my experiences in a way that uh, bring depth and understanding. Um, so that they're grounded, and uh, and then I can pass on or help others work with the same tools. Mm -hmm. So mediumship is a broad study. I find in North America there's a preoccupation with a certain type of mediumship, hmm. um, of a certain kind of channeling, and everybody wants to do this kind of channeling, and everybody thinks there's so many books written about, you know, talking to, let's call them the ancestors, your ancestors, or deceased people or what have you that's just one type of mediumship mm. and it's actually a very small minor part very mm. minor part of, of i'm not sure why it became kind of so popular or glamorous you know um there's almost no books anywhere that i have found that really talk about what mediumship really is which is a mystery school and it is it is an apprenticeship and nobody should enter into it lightly buy a book light a candle sit down try and open the door next thing you know you know you're connecting that's not how it usually is in the heritage traditions in the heritage traditions it's a deep study and you need to work with people who really know what they're doing and how to guide you on it and as much how to open as how to close mm -hmm. Okay, very interesting. You have to learn where your doors are. Opening your doors. Mm -hmm. There's a section in, in, in the volume one about the open door and it's all that whole section is on mediumship and 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 how, what to be careful of and how what to look for in a teacher and and what to be very careful of if you see this in the study, the mediumship study of the teacher that you started to, you know, what to watch out for. There's mm. there's a lot of um charlatanism i guess mm -hmm. call it that yeah now uh this is this is fascinating and i think very valuable information that you're sharing here and uh, my curiosity keeps going in this similar direction so uh let me let me um introduce this next question uh with a uh, a brief anecdote i met a woman um, gave her a ride to a ceremony one time, actually. So we were in the car for about an hour and a half, and she told me that she um, uh, saved up all her money, quit her job, and went down to South America to Peru for six months, uh, intent on really diving into the ayahuasca world, was guided to, to go up a, a tiny tributary way away from where the tourists were, and there were six shamans there. there a couple of questions could come out of this, but I want one in particular. Uh, I want to go with one in particular. Um, 
um, she went through three of them before she found one that she trusted. Some one one wanted too much money, one wanted sex, you know. So there was that. And this is just in a village where there's no white people around particularly. You know, she was like the only non-native in the village, I believe. Um, in any case, she did find somebody she was working with, happy working with. She was doing a lot of ayahuasca. I think she said 25, uh, you know, sessions a month for six months. Um, right near the end of that, uh, she, um, she was, um, she, she met, I guess you could say, uh, an entity or was being spoken to, so to speak, by, it's kind of like what the Buddha ex supposedly experienced just before his enlightenment, you know, the Mara. Mara coming in and it was like, okay, you know, I got this for you, got this for you, got this for you. And so this is just a one-on-one -on -one she was doing with the, the, the ayahuasca was there. Um, and she basically didn't go with that. In the morning, the ayahuascaro said to her, good thing you did not uh, go with that because I never would have had anything to do with you again. So the question for, that I want to ask you about that is, uh, and you can you know, go tangents if you would like, but um, if other things come up in your mind, but um, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, we all know, or many of us know, that it's a truism that power potentially corrupts. Uh, and you've had a lot of uh, influence on other people. You've been in positions that you could call, I could call, uh, p positions of power. Have you been tempted by uh, voices that want to seduce you into going the wrong direction? And have you de had to deal with that? Well, again, you've asked a bunch of questions. I keep on <laughs> filing them in my mind. Okay, that's question number three within the one question. Question number four. Okay, so I'm going to try and do them sequentially. Sure, take it anywhere uh, you want. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that anecdote. I'm not surprised she had to go through three, you know, people mm -hmm. before she found someone she was comfortable with. And, and, and this is a big part of the problem. You know, a big part of the problem, and especially with the one-on-one -on -one stuff, I'm I'm not in the school of the one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, that's not my school. It's not my teaching. It's not my practice. Um, uh, when I was working as a therapist, yes, of course, but that had complete. That wasn't so much non-ordinary states per se. You know, this is why Stan Groff's work was always done in groups. This is why the Santo Daini is a community work and mm -hmm. um, why there's always, you know, a senior team of elders who work together. Uh, and it, it reduces, when we work together, it reduces the possibility of, of a charismatic uh, elder, shaman, teacher, leader, fill in the blank, okay? Um, kind of giving in to ethical vulnerabilities. You can look at every spiritual tradition. In the last 30, 40 years, there's been every manageable kind of situation that could have been managed differently. There's been ethical problems in the Buddhist community, in Judaism, in Christianity. You, you can't turn around without some other problem popping up. Okay, it happened in the MAPS research study, right? Mm -hmm. let's, just, let's just say how sad, you know, for everybody involved, um, you know, because there's always a big price for everybody to pay afterwards. So when you have a community setting where you know that you are responsible to your team and you are a team, and the Santo Daimi, I'm always telling our our, our, our congregation, we work together, we're a team. The senior people are working together. It's not just the board of directors, it's the senior team. And, um, you know, it, 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 you asked me, have I ever felt, um, I don't, don't can think of myself as being in a position of power. How I, how I prefer to see it is that I'm in a position of responsibility. For me, there is a huge difference. I am responsible for something. I am responsible. Every time I serve, I look at that person, the person I am serving, I am now responsible for maintaining the sacredness of the environment, the safety of the individual, and their, their well-being to the fullest extent that I and our team are possible of maintaining. Okay, what is within our area of responsibility and so yes 
power is is you know jesus was offered power by satan you know you can rule the world you can turn these stones into bread i know you're hungry and then mara comes along and tempts buddha and um you know but you have what you have to remember is that darkness will always appeal to our vulnerabilities mm. so i found it i find it fascinating which kind of test comes to each individual person because that's speaking it, hunger of course we're always going to feel hunger you know but jesus didn't get beautiful women he got power <laughs> whereas buddha didn't get so much power he got beautiful women so interesting isn't that <laughs> so everyone has their own vulnerabilities and this is not a judgment it's not a criticism i've got mine you've got yours so when we shift it from power to instead of i have power to i have responsibility mm -hmm. that sets a completely different tone and if people are willing to step into that place of duty and responsibility and service true service then that eliminates a great deal of pressure to feel the kind of ego need okay to be important you know i think self-importance is the bane of western civilization yeah no we, kidding we're just loaded with self-importance mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I, you know, I still have lots of things I want to ask you about, but you'll, you, I think you'll enjoy this little, you know, uh, sort of factoid, if you will. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think it's pretty common and I've, I've, I've actually read stuff about this. That's, you know, direct sources of people that have dealt with native native Americans, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, historically, like the British, when they came into the southern part of the United States and were dealing with the Cherokee and people like that. And um, they found them very difficult to deal with in some ways uh, in terms of negotiating settlements. Of course, they all got screwed in the end, as we know. But, um, uh, you know, these are people writing from 400 years ago, and they're saying these people are difficult to deal with because they all think of themselves as a king. Um, and they said, yes, they will follow leaders, but if they don't like what the leader is saying, they will abandon that leader, no problem. Um, and I've been around the Native American church, and there's a kind of a similar thing going on there. They don't have uh, officers, so to speak. You know, there aren't like embedded, mm -hmm. institutionalized positions. There are roadmen uh, that mm -hmm. run meetings, and that shifts around a lot. It's not like one person's thing, you know. So I have this sort of little theory that the age of the guru is dead, or it should be dying. Uh, essentially, you know, that role needs to change and toward more what you're saying, uh, talking about community and sort of, um, you know, connecting and responsibility, mutual responsibility and so on and so on. Do you want to say anything more about that? Well, you know, just, uh, just to add maybe a thought about Indigenous people, we have to remember that we can't take our experiences as a direct comparison to theirs. Um, a, a wonderful and dear friend of mine uh, passed away a few years ago now, a Cree elder. He used to say, you know, we vote with our feet. We don't like something, we quietly walk out. Mm -hmm. That's it, you know. And we have to remember that they're... For, you know, they have a completely different worldview, okay? Their worldview is different. Their worldview is from how they're raised. This is what I why I have been told by Indigenous people and, and close friends is, is that their worldview is such is that what is healthy for the tribe, and, and there's a sense of being part of a tribe that, mm -hmm. again, doesn't exist. We're so bent on self-importance and individuality, which is important. We need to have individuality and a certain degree of independence. At the same time, we've forgotten how to live as a tribe. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so they're, they, from the time they're born, they've been raised in that everybody has their dignity and everybody has their respect and everybody has, you know, you, you pass a talking stick and everybody has wisdom and everybody has something of value to contribute to the tribe and every person's contribution is valued and appreciated and they also kind of discipline differently from how we do. Mm -hmm. You know, how they manage things is done in a much more open and this is my understanding in a community way. And so we don't have that in our, in kind of, let's call it Western civilization, you know, European and, you know, North American thinking. 
So I'm, I'm not sure if I answered, but all I can say is I'm truly, people ask me, you know, why did Mr. Neil turn what was a shamanic kind of practice? Because he spent six years um, apprenticing with the Ewaskeras. And why did, you know, well, the Divine Mother, the Divine Feminine, thank goodness, the Divine Feminine, back on back in the picture after 6,000 years of patriarchy, okay, she arrives. And, and the Divine Feminine met him in his experiences and she said, here, I'm giving you these instructions and you have to follow. And follow he did. And, you know, I see the deep wisdom in that. Um, I see the deep, deep wisdom in in the necessity of community, of, of, of the rituals, the way they're organized, the safety that is created in the rituals, and the necessity of community to keep exactly what we're talking about, to keep the madrina, the padrino, the elders in line, mm. to ensure that they are conducting themselves in ways that are ethical. And um, that are and, and in ways that are in alignment with the basic teachings of the traditions. Yeah, very interesting. So um, I, I'm getting close. I, I like to try to keep these under about an hour. I'm pretty sure I'm going to ask you to do a part two with me because there's just you have so Be much. Be my to pleasure. Share. Be my pleasure. I think we're going to have to do that. So I, I, I got about maybe three more, uh, you know, that I'm going to pick out of our little crowd here of, of questions. And so um, uh, uh, this is another one that is going to sound like three or four questions probably. So take it where you will. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It has to do with spirit assistance. And you've talked about that a little bit in the book. And the way I want to come at that with you is uh, I have been around the Santo Daime. I've probably done... 20 or 30 uh, sessions or, you know, uh, works with the local group here in Vancouver. Um, so I'm, I have familiarity with that and uh, not so much directly in terms of myself, in terms of, uh, you know, connecting with um, the spirit energies, you know, the the maestres and so on and so on. But I certainly hear about a, a lot about that and the songs are directed toward those, you know, St. John, St. Michael, all these different, um, uh, you know, uh, angels, if you will, or, you know, spirit guides, ancestors, etc., etc. Um, my impression, and this is a sort of a layperson impression, I suppose you could say, is that um, that uh, there's a the the kinds of entities, if you will, that are um, part of that uh, cosmology uh, tend to be these sort of um, more angelic kind of figures. These, you know, Saint Mary and you know Saint Michael and all these different ones. Whereas the uh, mestizo uh, shamanism tradition of uh, the Upper Amazon, for example, is much more what I would call animistic. Um, and you know, people that do those kinds of ceremonies with ayahuasca tend to see jaguars and serpents and you know those kinds of guides I don't hear about it a lot in the Santa that kind of animist connection in the daimi and I'm kind of wondering about that because you do in fact talk about that kind of connection a bit you mentioned a spider uh, healing and so on so can you address that issue a little bit in however way you want sure and um, and again a large question uh, well you know, it depends on, on which Santo Daime church you're actually in, because there are some main branches. Um, after the passage of Mr. O'Neill in 1971, of course, different branches. And this is, you know, again, I write about this, which is, you know, the the the, the tree and the tree being the seed, which is the, the, the life of a great teacher and how that becomes a tree and in their passage. So you can choose any of the great teachers you like. There's always many branches that develop. <clears throat> so we have many branches of Buddhism, of Hinduism, of Judaism, of Christianity. Okay, well, you've got many branches of Santo Daime. And what you will find is, uh, yes, in, in actually, if you look carefully through, you know, somebody who didn't quite believe me, I went and I pulled out every hymn of Mr. O'Neill's that addresses a non-Christian being. And there's lots of them. Oh. Okay, and his hymn book of a hundred of 128 hymns. Okay, plus then the Diversal. Um, you have many, many, many beings, beings of the Orient, of the East. You have beings of of the forest, the shamanic beings that he calls, and these are right there. 
the the shamanic element is right there but it depends on the church mm. uh, the individual church what the people there are connected to does this make sense what i'm saying because each yes. santo domingo church especially the independent ones will have their own flavor yeah it's ice cream but there's 54 different flavors okay and so um the, you may have the ritual will be the same the uniforms the same the crosses on the table the opening prayers closing prayers singing mastery's hymns and whichever other hymns of 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 that particular church or of the of the various branches of the santo daimi that that church may be connected to or as a center they weren't ever mystery never called his center a church by the way this is something that came in much later with legalization the need to somehow call our centers churches and it's fine church center same thing so except that for a lot of people it gives a very negative christian connotation mm. which is unfortunate because the true name of soda montreal is Ec eclectic center for the universal flowing light okay oh, that's the name <laughs> okay <laughs> that, that's a, that's a take from mastery's church which was you know center for faith and regeneration mm -hmm. so um yeah, same uh, thing it, happened with the uh, native american church you know, you know mm -hmm. they they incorporated to save their asses to put it crudely um in the late 19th century uh, uh they thought oh, well, these Americans, they love their religions. Let's make ourselves a religion. Before that, it never was anything like a church. So they had... Yeah, well, and I think yeah. Black Elk, I think, and that's a whole other conversation, but there were a few very significant people who made that bridge between Christianity and recognized that, uh, and here I'm going to quote my Vashina, a... Um, uh, an incredibly wonderful, uh, powerful medium in Santo Daimio Umbanda, who passed away a few years ago now, but still works with us from the other realms. And she would say, you know, it's all the same beings, but just around the world, they have a different name and they wear a slightly mm. different outfit, but they're all the same beings, you know? Mm. St. Michael's the same being everywhere. And, you know, and, and, and she's not wrong at all in that because you will find the warrior figure in just about and you will find the kind of the virgin figure and you will find all of these figures you know read your joseph campbell and you're going to find that these archetypal beings and these profound uh, beings are everywhere now as to your question as is yes i've got hymns in my own hymn books i have three hymn books um i've received hymns um, now through all of these years and, and many of them are very, very strongly centered on, um, on elements of the earth, the power of the, the wind, the sea, the ocean, the oneness, the interconnectedness of the universe, the mystery of the universe, the cosmos, you know, and uh, there's a lot of my hands are centered around that. And also the path of love, harmony, truth, and justice. Uh, my own personal encounters and those that I have heard uh, shared with me from people in our con members of our, of our congregation and even, you know, visitors have been that, no, it's not only, as a matter of fact, it's often quite rare for people to have encounters um, with, you know, the main figures of Christianity. That's mm -hmm. actually quite rare. They're really? not, wow. yeah, they're not encountering. They're countering, um, you know, there are, in the Santo Daini, there's some guides that are known, um, well-known in the line, in the Santo Daini line. And you will find hymns respecting them through most of the, you know, hymn books of the senior people through the branches. Um, and then again, each church may have their own individual guides that they feel particularly connected to us. Those of us who do have some strong connections with the uh, Santo Daini Umbanda through my Vishina, um, you know, we have this connection with the earth and the earth itself. And, and we can't deny that. That got lost in Christianity. Mm. Christianity threw that under the bus at some point. And I don't think that's anything that ever that the a great teacher like Jesus would have wanted people to do is to forget about the earth and nature and the creatures, so and the elements, you know. And so for us, this is part of it. Not to is to be celebrated, to be sung about, to be honored, to be vivid, and um, and and not to be forgotten. 
And those beings aren't kind of way up there over the clouds somewhere sitting on thrones. They either live in your heart or you haven't met them yet. Mm, Beautiful. Well put. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, as I keep saying, I've got a gazillion questions and um, uh, I would like to... You said you had two more, so let's go. Well, yeah, I'd like to just actually ask you one more. I think this would be a good time to bring it because I do want to have another round with you. Um, So uh, this is another kind of open-ended one, and I don't even know if you'll have an answer for it, to be honest. At the very end of volume two of your book, of your two-volume book, Ayahuasca Awakening, uh, you said, uh, you put in uh, what you called a message from the stars. Mm-hmm. So if you could just kind of, um, you know, tap in for a second to the extent that you can in this situation, what message might the stars have for us right now? That's one of my hymns, actually. My second hymn book is called A Message from the Stars. And if you notice in the books, I opened the first book with a very young experience I had when I was perhaps eight years old and had this kind of sense of universal connection with the cosmos and the stars. And then I bring it back around at the end of volume two to being again an experience I had with the stars um, on holiday down south. And, and I add in one of my hymns from my second hymn book. And, and, and it is as if the cosmos is trying to wake us up. And it is as if Divine Mother is trying to awaken all of us to bring us back into balance. You know, um, how to bring us back into balance so that we are the guardians working with nature. You know, if we were to realize that you and I and the tree outside are one, and you and I and the wind and the creatures and, you know, the birds and the bears and the dolphins, and we're all interconnected. And that we all need each other. And, and, and this is very much uh, connected to Indigenous philosophies. You know, what Indigenous peoples have been saying and trying to wake us up and warn us about the waters and the earth and the trees and the creatures. And what sages and, and spiritual teachers have been trying to teach us for millennia. And what these sacred plants and these experiences in non-ordinary states of consciousness are trying to awaken us to is to turn things around and become uh, guardians of the planet in an interconnected way so that we know the water I drink becomes part of my body. The food that I eat becomes part of my body. You ask me, why did I cover so much material? Volume two, the circle of wholeness. Yes, we talk about nutrition and food and you know exercise and meditation and prayer and science and you know ancient traditions. We talk about that in the circle of wholeness because that's how we get whole. We can't just do me. And I take my little vitamins, my supplements, and I do my little thing of yoga, and now I'm whole. No, if we are not contributing to everybody else's wholeness, if we are not taking care of the planet, then that isn't, that's going to all fall apart. Yeah. It's all going to fall apart. That's the message from the stars. Wake up, yeah. everybody. Wake up. Wake up. Awaken. Mm-hmm. Awaken. Yeah, that's very touching. You got me on the heart in the heart with that one. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I definitely do want to do a part two. And I think the first question don't don't answer this one now because I want to start with this one next time and because this could okay. go for a while. Um, the, I think perhaps almost the first question I want to ask you is, you know, you spoke about the power of surrendering and the challenges of surrendering. So I think, uh, you know, how to surrender uh, is a key issue, of course. It's central, if I would say, absolutely. Um, so uh, now regarding the book or books, I keep saying books, yes. um, when will they be actually published? They are available. You can find them anywhere. You can find them at Freezing Press, my publishers. You can find them. Would you like to see them? I can hold this up. Sure. Yes. Do it. Yeah. Okay. So, am I holding them up? Can you see them? Yep. Just back them toward you a little bit there. About there is good. Yep. Yeah. Just leave them there for a sec. People can look at them. Sorry if you're not watching this, folks, if you're listening to it, but the book, again, is called Ayahuasca Awakening. And I can't, I forget what the subtitle is. Can you want to read out the subtitle? A Guide guide to Self Discovery, Self Mastery, and Self Care. And and, there you go. and and you can find them on my website. The links are there. 
to where you need to find them. Mm -hmm. And uh, my website is, uh, you'll find me at www.rev, for Reverend, dr, for doctor, Jessica, all lowercase connected, no spaces, rochester.com. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, again, I'm not saying this because I'm sitting here with Jessica Rochester. Uh, I have done a fairly good job of getting through most of the two volumes. And uh, I, you know, as I say, I've been around the block a lot. I've, I've, I've done a lot of practices. I've done a lot of study. I've done a lot of reading. And I'm very confident that this is uh, reliable, excellent guidance for people. Uh, uh, you could not do go wrong by having these two books with you. And you, they're the kind of books you would have with you for a long time, because there's a lot in there, as, you, as we've been talking about. So um, uh, let's leave it there for, for today, and uh, um, I'll speak with you about doing a part two to get through the rest of my crowd of questions that I have for you. Um, so I'll just leave it there and say thank you very much, Jessica. It's been my pleasure, and all good vibrations to the listeners. <laughs>